beginning in verse 10. Have we not all one Father? Has not the one God created us? Why then are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? Judah has been faithless, and an abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign god. May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob any descendant of the man who does this, who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. And the second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning, because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. But you say, why does he not? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, we ask that your Holy Spirit would minister this passage to our hearts this morning. Wherever we're at, would you convict where we need to be convicted, but encourage where we need to be encouraged in the gospel. Give us understanding, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. Well, throughout Scripture, one of the truths that's most clear or becomes most evident is that our relationship with God is connected to our relationship with other people. This comes out in a number of ways. One example is in Jesus' teaching about the law. When he summarized the law, he said, Uh, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and your neighbor as yourself. And in other passages like 1 John, we find out those things are connected. If we love God, we'll be loving other people. And this is certainly true in the area of marriage. Scripture also tells us that marriage is a picture of God's relationship to his bride, the church. So it's no wonder then that Satan and the unbelieving world around us would attack and seek to destroy marriage in the way that God ordained. Why? Because by doing so, God is not only dishonored, but the very gospel is obscured. And what better way to accomplish this attack than among those who profess faith in Jesus Christ. In our text this morning, Malachi highlights the connection between how the people were relating to one another in marriage and how they were relating to God. And in doing so, he exposes their sins. So what was the general sin of the people 
that he's addressing. Well, in verse 10, we read that it's their faithlessness. And we might connect this in context back to verse 8, which was preached on last week. Um, In that verse, the sin and faulty instruction of the priests contributed to many people stumbling. And in our passage, I think we see one example of that stumbling. What does he say? Verse 10. Have we not all one Father? Has not one God created us? Why then are we faithless to one another? Profaning the covenant of our fathers. You see how this verse assumes that connection I just talked about. The vertical relationship with the Lord and the horizontal with one another. But I want us to notice, first of all, how Malachi sets the tone for what he's going to talk about, which is, in many ways, difficult things to hear. Perhaps difficult things for us to hear about this issue. But he sets the tone by seeing their behavior in light of who God is. And he highlights two things about who God is. Uh, First of all, he is their father. He had spiritually adopted them as his treasured possession. But even before this adoption, what was their condition before God? Well, in their sin, and I'm borrowing a picture here from Ezekiel 16, which is a striking, vivid picture of their spiritual state before God. And you'll be reading that. If you're following our reading plan, you'll be reading that this week. What do we see in that picture? We see a child, an infant, abandoned in an open field. A Canaanite infant at that, speaking to their spiritual lostness. And this infant is wallowing in its own blood, it says in the text. Left for dead, helpless. But God is depicted as coming by and seeing the child and saying, live giving spiritual life where there was none. Not only that, but taking the child as as his own and caring for it, providing for it. He did that for us in our spiritual state. You know, one passage that we're very familiar with is the parable of the Good Samaritan. And we often think of it in terms of our responsibility to one another our neighbor, and how to treat our neighbor. And that's a main teaching of the text. But don't miss the fact that God is the ultimate good Samaritan. What does that parable tell us about the nature of God, that he would have us act like him? Do you see him that way as your heavenly father this morning? Of course, we see the love of the Father most clearly in the Son. Scripture tells us He demonstrated God's love for us in His work on the cross. Remember also that the Father's love for you is not reluctant or forced. Nobody's forcing His hand to love you, to save you. He does so because he wants to. And that's probably one of the most overwhelmingly wonderful truths of Scripture. 
the Puritan John Owen, in his book on communion with God, he talks about the love of the Father, and he talks about the tendency of sinners like us to respond in a way that's not corresponding to that love. He says, it is the misapprehension of God that makes anyone run away from him. Especially those who have the least bit of spiritual life in them, who have been adopted. Are you running away from the Father in any way this morning? If so, you do not understand the Father's love. How much he loves you in the Lord Jesus Christ. The second thing that he highlights about who God is, is that he is creator. Now certainly we affirm that God is creator of all things, seen and unseen. But in this context, and other passages do this as well, highlights the fact that God is a creator of his people in a redemptive sense. He formed a people for himself. Listen to the words of Isaiah 43, verse 1. But now, thus says the Lord, He who created you, O Jacob, He who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. He created spiritual life where there was none. Out of nothing, just like we speak of the physical creation. And he has done that for us. Again, out of his sheer good pleasure. What can we learn from these observations about the character of God? Well, first of all, we rightly see our behavior when we see it in relationship to him. And that's what Malachi does here, in essence, by beginning this way. We don't really understand our sin or our behavior at all by just looking horizontally at one another, comparing ourselves to one another. Secondly, just on an emotional and relational level, the thought of sinning against one who is so wonderful, like I just described, one that has been so good to you, to whom we owe our very existence, physically and spiritually, and all the blessings in the Lord Jesus. To sin against one like that is, is shocking. It's a shockingly inappropriate response. Do you think about that when you're tempted to sin? Do you think about, who is it that I'm sinning against? Do you say with Joseph, how can I do this great wickedness against God after he has been so good to me? Now, the main sin of the people was faithlessness. Faithlessness to the covenant God had made with them. And the covenant in context here that he's referring to is probably the Mosaic covenant uh, in light of the context. However, again, remember, since the fall, all the covenants that culminate in the fulfillment of the new covenant are connected. They gradually unfold the one purpose 
of God's grace in the Lord Jesus. Now, in this covenant relationship context, every offense, every faithless act against one another in the covenant community is an act of disloyalty against God. Again, the horizontal connected with the vertical relationship. So how, how have they been faithless? If that's the general sin, well, a particular sin number one on your outline they were faithless by marrying unbelievers. Verse 11 says, they married the daughter of a foreign God. We know that from other places in Scripture that this was a major problem for the covenant community after the exile. In Ezra chapter 9, we read that the officials approached Ezra and were saying this, the people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the peoples of the lands with their abominations. They have taken some of their daughters to be wives for themselves and for their sons so that the holy race has mixed itself with the peoples of the lands. And he actually calls this faithlessness just like Malachi does. Just one comment about the mention of holy race. The word in Hebrew there is for offspring or seed. And if you look throughout scripture, you see this theme develop that the true offspring of the promise are those who have faith in God's Messiah. So this isn't talking about this race is better than another race or this one's privileged and this one isn't. After all, don't we see in Scripture that people from every tongue, tribe, and nation are considered offspring of Abraham by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ? So that's not the issue here. The reason that this was faithlessness to God's covenant was not race or ethnicity being connected with them, but it was idolatry, spiritual adultery. It was the gods of those nations that were a snare to the people. That's the issue. And that's the issue across the board. If you look at the various contexts in the Old Testament where marriage to those of other nations are forbidden, that's the main issue. Idolatry. And these women uh, that they were marrying in Malachi's day worshipped other gods and remained worshipping other gods. They weren't converting by faith in the true God. What were some possible motives that the people would engage in this kind of behavior? Well, many speculate, but the two foremost that seem to be in play here would be, not surprisingly, sexual immorality, just sinful desire. Just want what's right in my own eyes. Secondly, money. For financial reasons, you know, the, the post-exilic community uh, in many ways was an impoverished lot. They were a small group of people trying to rebuild in a land that had been destroyed. So the draw of marrying into wealthy families from other nations, that would have been a draw also. But whatever the case may be, they profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, deserving judgment as verse 12 says. 
Now, some scholars have observed that by the time of Malachi, we're talking in the 400s BC, that the Mosaic Covenant was seen by some as old-fashioned, out of date. It it had been given a thousand years prior. That this was too restrictive to be taken seriously in a modern age like the 400s BC. Um, That sounds very similar to the thinking of our culture today. Who would view the Bible's teaching on things like marriage and whom you marry and things like that are actually applicable today. But God makes it clear to Malachi's audience and to us today, not the case. It's not outdated. It's God's word. It's God's design. Now, you may hear this and be tempted to say, especially those of you who are not married, wait a minute. Who am I marry is my business. It's my life. My question is, when is anything in our lives as believers our business and not God's business? What areas of our lives are off limits to God somehow? We might ask some follow-up questions to that by way of self-examination. Why would we want certain areas of our lives to be off limits to God? What are we not believing about who he is that contributes to such a desire? So they were marrying unbelievers, idolaters, being negatively influenced by them. What else were they doing that was faithless? Well, particular sin number two on your outline. They were faithless through divorce. Verses 13 through 16. And I want to begin with a disclaimer. A full treatment of what the Bible says about this issue is beyond the scope of this sermon. There's many other passages that you would need to consult, consider, like Matthew 19, 1 Corinthians 6 and 7. And even passages like Matthew 5, where Jesus talks about you can commit adultery in your hearts, not just outward actions. But what I want to focus on this morning is what Malachi addresses and what he emphasizes about divorce. So this is it's more focused. It's not giving you the full doctrine and all that Scripture says about it. And also, by way of introduction to this topic, it's a difficult topic. Let's just admit it. There's a lot of wreckage out there in the world, even in this room. And you may feel, I don't know what your baggage is. I don't know what you bring to the table. God knows. You may feel convicted of sin, just like the people of Malachi's day. But I want to assure you, That there is hope in Christ. He's more than a match for any sin regarding this issue. And the encouragement that I would give you today that we find in other places is, what is God saying to you today? Choose to submit to his word today. 
obey, repent today. You you can't change all the baggage of the past. But what will you do with his word today? Verse 13. In this second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning, because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. But you say, why does he not? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. You see, what the people were engaging in here was what one commentator calls aversion divorce. Aversion divorce. And what what does that mean? Well, in contemporary terms, it might go something like this. We've just grown apart from each other. We've fallen out of love. I'm tired of my spouse. I want something different, something new, before I get too old. I don't want to be tied down. This is the kind of thinking that I believe he's getting at here and what the commentator called an aversion divorce. Note that verse 14 tells us that God was a witness to them when they entered into this covenant of marriage. In that context, a witness was one who did not merely observe the event. Okay, He wasn't just a a bystander to the event, but one who acted as, as an enforcer of the covenant agreement. A third party who made sure the parties involved kept them. This brings up an important practical point for us. Marriage is not merely a social event among human beings just to be observed by family and friends in some sort of religious venue. It's a covenant before God who is present as a witness. He's an involved third party to our marriage. Now notice what the people were doing while they were engaging in this behavior. Again, this is shocking. They were engaged in religious activity and bringing sacrifices and wondering why, Lord, do you have a problem with our sacrifices? They engaged in sacrifice and ritual while their hearts were far from God. Have you made that mistake in your worship and service of the Lord? Honoring Him with your lips but your hearts are far from him. Verse 15, though somewhat obscure, it seems to at least provide a reason to be faithful and not faithless in marriage. And it's, there's a possible allusion there to God's institution of marriage in Genesis 2. Verse 15 also speaks of Seeking godly offspring. What is that all about? Why, what is God seeking in this godly offspring? Well, I think 
Practically, this points to the, the whole general Godward thrust of marriage. Not only to honor him and be true to your covenant of marriage, but also with a view toward a godly household. Which, you know, marriage to unbelievers who are idolaters and divorce might undermine that household in that way. Again, it's an important practical implication for us to consider. Simply this, that marriage is not primarily about personal fulfillment. It's about God. Ephesians 5. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying it refers to Christ and the church. You see, marriage is not an end in and of itself. You know, ending with your own personal satisfaction and desires, you know, at least at that particular time for you. It's about Christ's love for the church. It is literally a witness to the gospel. To the watching world. How you treat your wife, how you treat your spouse reflects upon how Christ loves his church. Now just as a side note, doing marriage God's way will lead to satisfaction, enjoyment, and blessing. Although it's hard sometimes for two sinners to, to get together in that way. Is that how you view your marriage? As part of something bigger than the horizontal? Do you view it as a witness to the gospel of Jesus Christ? And then we have to ask, as hard as it, hard as it is, we need to ask ourselves, what kind of witness are we presenting? Are we presenting a witness that says that Christ's love is conditional, that it's selfish, that it's unfaithful? And what is the witness we're presenting to the world? And lastly, in, in verse 16, another difficult verse. It's a difficult passage. Um, scholars differ in how they render the translation, and the really that comes down to the main issue is whether God is the subject, as in the NAS and NIV, you know, I hate divorce, says the Lord, or is the man the subject, as in the ESV, the man who hates and divorces. Let me just say this, either way, God does not approve of aversion divorce. Nor does he desire the breaking of the marriage covenant. The context makes that very clear. So this is, this is tough. This is tough to hear. How, how should we respond to this? Well, twice Malachi calls the people to guard themselves and do not be faithless. Verses 15 and 16. We could say maybe in New Testament terms, uh, this is a call to walk in a manner worthy of your calling, in a manner worthy of the Lord. 
How do we do that? Perhaps you can answer that in many different ways, but I just want to highlight a couple things. First of all, cultivate an ongoing awareness of the twofold witness idea that I talked about. God is a witness to your marriage covenant. He's concerned, He takes it seriously. Your marriage is also a witness to the gospel. And then secondly, be encouraged. We're all broken people. Come from broken situations, many of us. Think about Christ's faithfulness to you. He is faithful to his promises. Is he not worthy of our faithfulness in return? Let's pray. Father, we confess that we are a broken and needy people. With this issue, many of us have sinned. Many of us have been sinned against in this. But we look to you for forgiveness and hope. Help us to walk this day in a manner worthy of our calling. Pray this in Christ's name. Amen.